Thank you, faithful servant. When I was in Bible college, um, they did a lot of things. But one of the things that we did is we had small groups. We have small groups here at this church, community groups. But in the Bible college, they they really um, uh, were strongly suggested that you form some kind of small group. And sometimes they'd help us do that. So I was in small, different small groups throughout my time there. And sometimes in these small groups, now these are Bible college kids, students. And sometimes in my small group, some of the students were eaten up with doubt. And I remember this one girl and she just was in tears during our group because she, she said, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know about the save salvation stuff raised in a Christian home. I just don't know. How do you know if you're saved? And, and others who had maybe been raised on the mission field uh, wondering about God. I don't know. Is, is, is this the only true God? I've seen whole, whole cultures give their lives to other gods. And sometimes I, ju- I just don't know. And there's a lot of doubting that takes place. Have you ever doubted God? You know, we we overcome our doubts, apparently, or when we when we become saved, when we embrace Christ, we have to wrestle with our doubts. We have to wrestle with things that we don't believe and then decide, yes, I do believe in what Scripture says. And that's how we come to faith. But sometimes if we've come to faith, does that mean we won't doubt anymore? We won't have questions and I'm not talking about lacking understanding. You know, in Bible college, you can expect we're all here to gain understanding. There's things we don't know. But doubting is a little different. Have you ever doubted God? Have you ever doubted this whole plan of salvation and how it works and what parts are really necessary? How meaningful is it? Have you ever doubted the existence of God? Is he really in the heavens? Is he really sovereign over the activities of this created order? And do those thoughts creep up on you and sometimes scare you? If so, if you have doubted, even as a believer, you are not alone. This morning's passage We're going to discover that even one of God's greatest saints or even the greatest saints can experience seasons of doubt, can in in some sense of the word, lose their firm grip on the things or the happenings or the promises of God. And doubt rushes in when we become unsure about things. Doubt can rush in and filled fill this void. The doubt is not the same as unbelief. I kind of see doubt as if over here you have complete unbelief and over here you have complete belief. Doubt is somewhere in the middle. It might be closer to this or closer to this, but it's somewhere in the middle. Alistair McGrath says unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. You deliberately reject the advances of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel and the word of God. But doubt is different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It is a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. You want to be sure, but you can't be sure because doubt is in the way. Whatever it takes for you to be sure isn't present for whatever reason. 
John MacArthur says that in the New Testament, when doubt is addressed, it's addressed within the idea that uh, first you believed in something. So it's within this context of faith. In order to even doubt something, the idea is that first you must have believed it to begin with. So doubt is presented as a problem of the believer. And then J.C. Ryle says, doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, only that his faith is small. It is a matter of faith and doubting can be a serious thing. It can be used for better or for worse. It can creep into the lives even of the most faithful men and women. We've heard the expression doubting Thomas. One of the disciples, the apostles, is, has that reputation because he was one who's when they said, Christ is risen. I'm not going to believe it until I put my fingers in the very holes that caused his death. So he was given the title doubting Thomas this morning in our passage. We're going to look at doubting John, John the Baptist of all people. John the Baptist, who Jesus said is the greatest prophet. His doubt specifically was he, he wavered over the true identity of Christ. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one? John began his ministry with such assurance. After all, he was the one that identified the, the Messiah. As a prophet, he was the one that stood before all and said, behold, in other words, look, the, the lamb. Who takes away the sin of the world. And then in our passage, not so much. So what changed in this saint of God? Well, let's look at the first 19 verses of chapter 11, the gospel of Matthew, and we're going to look at doubt this morning. We're going to look at potential causes of doubt, and then we're going to look at ways that we can combat it or remedies of doubt. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept that he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And we learned back in Matthew chapter 4 that John was arrested. We didn't learn why. We just know that he is. We'll learn in Matthew chapter 14 why John was arrested. And we'll get that whole story. But I'll just give you a hint. He was not arrested for drunk driving or anything of the sort. John is in prison. And in prison, he still has his disciples coming to him in that day and age. When you were in prison, you often depended on the kindness of others, your friends or the family for your very survival. Wasn't like what you see in today's prisons in this country where all your needs are met. Not saying it's not a miserable place. I'm just saying it's different. And John, he, he relied on people, but his disciples were still there. They they loved him. They were ministering to him and he was ministering to them. And they were still talking about the things of the kingdom. It was still on their hearts, burning in their hearts and burning on their minds. And so John would send his disciples to get reports back and forth from Jesus. What's happening out there? I can't see anything from in here. Tell me, you have to be my eyes. You have to be my ears. And they were. And you would think that after hearing these detailed reports that the disciples were bringing to him in prison about the supernatural miracles that were taking place, the people that were getting healed and and the power of the word of God going forth and all the followers that were were walking behind Jesus. You would think that all these reports would only serve to build up his faith in the Messiah and Christ. But what is going on here? How could they not be enough to where John begins to question even his identity. Are you the one or is another one going to come after you? David Platt lists three potential causes of doubt. And I'm sure that you will be able to relate to all three of them. But the first potential cause of doubt in God or salvation or even the things of God, the word of God, the promises of God, the commands of God could be difficult Circumstances, and this is probably the most common. Difficult circumstances, circumstances that come into our lives completely unexpected a lot of times, completely unplanned or just circumstances that we think are too heavy for us. Now, God, John lived a difficult life, but on his own terms. As Jesus said, you didn't go out and see this man in soft clothes. This guy wasn't wearing silks. So John imposed upon himself tough choices and tough life. You know, he wore scratchy clothes and he and he he ate hard things like bugs 
And, um, you know, he did. He just deprived himself of some of the modern day conveniences. Nothing wrong in him. He just said, no, that's not for me. He lived in the wilderness. And he also imposed difficulties upon himself in the sense that he had the courage to confront the powers that be in his age. I mean, he would confront people face to face, the rulers that were much more powerful than he was. He did it. And sometimes that would bring hardship. That's not an easy thing to do. But now he's in a situation where he has been placed in prison. And he's not in control of the difficult circumstances. And it's change. Things change. They change. They can change our attitude. And they can change the way we look at life. They can change the things we thought we believed in. The things that we thought were so sure and certain. Difficult circumstances can challenge those things. And so... He's there now and he has new hardships to worry about. Maybe there aren't those delicious bugs available to him in prison. He's got to eat prison food or whatever people bring to him. But you can imagine it just does something to you. And it's, there's a loneliness there. I mean, you're, you're by yourself or perhaps you have prison mates that you don't care for. But there's a loneliness there. He's missing the fellowship of the saints. And it bears down on us spiritually and mentally and psychologically and and our outlook. You know, there's something about looking at life and then looking at that same picture behind prison bars. Just that little separation changes things. If you use your imagination with me even now, just just playfully, as I preach, magically bars appear on the windows and doors, just just like in the movies. And all of a sudden, we all look at each other like, is this some kind of joke? Pastor, what are you up to? And I say, I don't know anything about this. And some of you run to the back and some of you look at the front. Yep, those windows are barred too. The doors are barred. We are stuck in here. This is real. And nobody knows why. That your mind would begin to work, wouldn't it? Is this an act of terrorism? Is this Christian persecution? Uh, or most importantly, does this mean I'm going to miss lunch? How long are we going to have to be in here? How long will I be with my dear brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe too long. Maybe longer than I wanted. What will become of life outside? I mean, what does it mean? And I know that's playful, but when you look through hardship and prison bars represent the difficulties in life or the pits in life, the things that happen to us when you're standing on this side of it, all of a sudden things change. And if we were behind bars right now, things would be a lot different. And it can play with our minds. Difficult circumstances has the potential to change us for the better. Or for the worse. And then there's another potential cause of doubt. And that is unmet expectations. Based on what, how we think life works. How we think God works. How we think things are going to play out. Unmet expectations. So it's been a little over 100 years now. But if you have studied um, back when Corky was in Grade school. He studied Pavlov's dog. See, you snickered and it came back. So he studied Pavlov's dog. And an experiment was done where 
this scientist trying to learn about behavior. Um, he has a dog, experimental dog, and every time he feeds this dog, before he feeds the dog, he just rings a simple bell. Ding. And then he does this and he, he creates, he forms this habit. And it gets to the point where the dog, when he hears that ding, he knows it's time to eat. And as he learns this behavior, there's this expectation. So his whole body expects that he's going to get a full belly. And what happens is the scientist could ding the bell and the dog would salivate. There wasn't even any food in front of him, but everything triggered. Now, this same experiment was used on humans when I was a kid. It was called the good humor man because the good humor man would come around in the truck and the and the bells and the music would go off and you knew what that meant. And you're salivating and then you're asking people for money so you can get that strawberry shortcake or that orange push up. And uh, this is this is besides the point, but popped into my head. But the uh, we uh, growing up and my parents are still there. We lived in a dead end road. So you like you go through neighborhoods and stuff as you keep on, keep on, keep on going. Then you come to our house. But there was a sign that said dead end, you know, no, no exit and things like that. Dead end private property. And so the good humor man, of course, didn't come down to our house. There's a lot of kids in our house. Mom, dad, had a lot of kids, I had a lot of brothers and sisters, and we were all hungry. But one day the good humor man, lo and behold, it was a miracle. You know, you're in the house, you're outside playing and you hear the music, never heard the music before. Here he comes tentatively in his truck coming down our driveway. Of course, he's wondering, is there a place to turn around? Anyway, he comes down and here come all these kids out of the house. Mom, mom, we got to have some ice cream. And we're begging her for ice cream, begging her for money. And this guy's thinking, this is a gold mine down in here. <laughs> this whole neighborhood all in one family. And it's funny. So. For like that week, he starts coming every day. And one day, mom, and she's tired of it because we're just begging her for money. And she comes out and she tells him, don't come down here anymore. <laughs> so expectations. There are things that we read. There are things that happen in life. And we have expectations on people we have expectations on God. We learn to expect things. Now, John obviously knew his Bible. I mean, he's a prophet. He's a man of God and he's a Jew. And just to be a Jew in that day meant for the most part, you knew the scriptures. You were raised in the scriptures. And given that his task was to literally herald the coming of the one, the Messiah, you would expect that any Bible verses that had anything to do with what's it look like when the Messiah comes. I mean, he wants to be prepared. He wants to know his stuff. He's going to herald it. So he would be well versed in these things. And so he would know, of course, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. So obviously that's the, the picture scripture paints. Man, the Messiah is going to set people free. He's going to set the captives free. Here I am in prison. And not only am I in prison now as a servant of the Lord, but my people are still under Roman rule. So I see some things happening, but I see a, things, a lot of things that I expect to happen and they're not happening. 
And not only are the freedom things not happening, but John would also expect the Messiah, as it was prophesied, to bring judgment. Because it's right there in Scripture again in Isaiah. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads away. So he's expecting some of the good old-fashioned Old Testament kind of judgment. Maybe fire and brimstone, something, but God has been known to do these things. He'll make, the, he'll make the earth shake or he'll open it up if he needs to when he sends judgment. After all, part of his job description in heralding, heralding the Messiah was to warn the people that with the Messiah comes wrath. And he was warning the unrepentant sinners, repent. That's how you prepare for him. And so he would even usher some of his own judgments and warnings of wrath like he did in Matthew chapter 3. And we read this a while ago. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And his faith has some hiccups as he thinks about, well, okay, I see the miracles. But I'm in prison. My people are in prison. I see no signs, no activity, nothing to lead me to the belief that the captives will be set free. What is he doing and what is he not doing? I don't see this fury and judgment that I'm reading about. As a matter of fact, I'm getting reports that Jesus is dining with sinners. Instead of grabbing them around the neck. So what he thought it should look like perhaps hit a brick wall with unmet expectations. And then another potential cause of doubt, of course, is limited understanding. And because we're finite and because we're just not working with a full deck because we're not God, we often draw Wrong conclusions about things. We don't know their end. We think we know their end. And we say, based on what I have, the faculties I have to work with, this is not good or this is not good or this is not going to happen. We can't see tomorrow, but we're already sure what's going to happen tomorrow. We become little prophets. And we question things and question things. And and we, we say to ourselves, all God's ways are good. And then God steps on our toes. And then we think, wait a minute, how could this be good? We have to base our decisions on what we have to work with. And we are finite. We can't see the whole picture. And so often, so often uh, difficult circumstances and unmet expectations. And then just the fact that we have a limited view and therefore just draw wrong conclusions can work Against us, I'm sure you can relate to one or all of these things. As one second, we're praising the Lord. And then in the middle of our devotion, we get bad news and we think, God, where are you? 
Why, why is this happening to me? Surely this can't be in your plan. I know I just read that everything is in your plan, but this can't be in your plan. And how could the darkness be part of your plan? How could this kind of pain and suffering fit into your kingdom as the king? It's just not computing to me. Why would you allow such grief and misery? And so doubting and these kind of times can change us for the better. Or for the worst. John is thinking perhaps that Jesus is falling short of scriptural fulfillment. Of course, we know on the the other side of this that Jesus far exceeds any of John's expectations of what the Messiah will come and do perform, right? I mean, God has a plan that's even bigger than what John expected. Set more captives free. It's just that it was more spiritually than it was physically. It was just executed in a different way, but it was way more grand. Might I suggest that that might be our story, too, and things that we think, oh, this didn't happen. This is unfulfilled. This promise, this promise is a dud. God exceeds our expectations, things that we could even imagine or Dream deliverance comes, freedom comes, and yes, judgment will come and it will be as fierce, even more fierce as what John could imagine in the end. It's all there, just not immediately. So when God's kingdom doesn't exactly line up with our perspective, it can throw the saints off course a little bit, has that potential. It can lift us up, cause us to dig deeper, or it can Put us down. And by the way, doubting is not a fun thing because you think you're John, you're in prison, you've given your life to this Messiah, and now you're wondering, you even pointed him out, and now you're, you're, you're in prison in your own heart because you don't know anymore. Not knowing. We were, we were created to know, we were created to be sure about things. That's why we're curious, because we want to be sure about things. It's a miserable place for him to be. I feel bad for John, not only being in prison, but now. Being played with thoughts of doubt. So these kind of things happen and they're very real. They just are real. We face them, don't we? But the solutions or the remedies are also real. And so because we face these kind of things as believers, even mature believers, we want to hang on Jesus' words now. We want to see, okay, then what, would, what does Jesus have to say to John's doubt? How's he going to handle him? Is he going to rebuke him? And what kind of solution can I get for my own doubts and struggles that I have in life? So we want to hang on Jesus' words here. How does he handle the situation? Well, first we combat doubt with with the determination of siding with biblical revelation as opposed to our own personal experience when it comes to truth. We want to we want to trust God's word more than we want to trust our personal experience and our interaction with it. We're the ones that are questionable, not God. We're the ones that are fickle, not God. We're the ones that overestimate and underestimate. We're the ones that overreact and underreact. God is true. God is steady. 
prison bars and pits don't throw him off. They throw us off or have that propensity. Modern day realities and cultural pressures don't throw him off, but they might throw us off. And so we need to be aware that we may not properly understand God's word. If we're doubting it or equally dangerous, we may not be applying it properly. But it is still the foundation of truth. Now, where do you get that? Look how Jesus answers and, and ministers to John's heart. His troubled, doubting heart. It says, report back. Here's what I want you to tell John. He's going through this problem. He wants to know. Here's what I want you to tell him to assure him. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Leopards are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor of good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. These are all sure, biblical revelatory signs that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. In other words, go back to God's word with your doubts. Take them back to God's word. These are absolute sure signs. Maybe not all the signs that you were hoping for or expecting, but this is truth. Look at the truth. And the blind see in the Old Testament, we're not given any examples of that miracle. The New Testament, we have Paul and that's about it. So Jesus is reversing the curse He's doing what no ordinary man can do. He is fulfilling the things that only the Messiah can do, promised to do. He is the promised one, the kingdom. In other words, tell John the kingdom has broken into the darkness. Light is here. The reverse has taken place. The king has arrived. It's just in the beginning stages, but the battle is on. Blood has been drawn and it will come to an end, just like scripture Says, But too often we are in the bad habit of giving the benefit of the doubt to our personal experience instead of giving the benefit of the doubt to what God has written in his word. I think as Christians, I, I believe that the assumption should be that if things aren't lining up according to God's word, it's not God's problem. I must be misunderstanding something or misapplying something or have a wrong kind of expectation. I must be in error. Something's not wrong with this. Something must be wrong with me. So we don't want to let our cultural experience serve to undermine our faith. Does this ever happen? Absolutely. This is happening even today. And it happens with the people of God and it happens in the church. This is a message for us today because there are direct commandments of God that are being dismissed based on cultural feelings and experiences based on the way culture has decided that things should work based on the pain, the suffering and the joys that they experience by doing life a certain way. And even in conservative Churches, some of the most basic commands and clear scriptures of God are being compromised because of cultural pressure. And so Christians are doubting the word of God for these reasons. So, for instance, just to give some modern day examples, we know that the biblical view of marriage has been under attack. Can you remember when this idea that's been a few decades ago now, but I was, you know, a Christian then, and this idea that same-sex marriage came across the screen, and you're like, what? 
same-sex marriage. No way. It's right in here in the Bible. How could anybody say that? And you think, oh, my goodness. And look how many things have happened since then. But we look at the at the biblical view of marriage. It was under attack. And the Bible's being accused of being too archaic. Uh, it, it's out of date. It needs to be modernized. Why? Because, look, church, can't you see that that Mr. A and Mr. B are really deeply in love? And you are unfair to say that a life together is reserved for only a certain people that meet this criteria. It's unfair. It's archaic. You need to change. It's not right. You are depriving this couple of living the life that they want to live. Why is it fair for you to come together and deprive them of that? So the cultural pressure was on and you see the talk shows and the tears and the pain. And so you take the reality of the matter is this. They are in love. Get with the picture. You deal with it. You change. And then we come into this uh, idea of having to catch up with modern day reality. The scriptural teaching on genders. Gender identity is then attacked. Of course, it all snowballs. And by the way, it's not finished yet because ideas have consequences. There's no telling what we're going to read about tomorrow. But the, the whole idea of gender identity, the teaching that there are two different people that are designed differently. It's old fashioned. It's brutal. It's demeaning. And all of this idea of gender identity, it's, it's a mere social construct. So get with the picture. The reality of the fact is this. You have men living in women's bodies and they're tortured over it. And you have women living in men's bodies and they're tortured over it. And for you to say you have to stay that way because it's God's design, it's just unfair. It's mean. It's unloving. It's brutal. What kind of God do you serve? And so you have this kind of cultural pressure. Now, these are all over things that if we read the Bible, we will see that are very, very plain and they are under attack. And then attack. And then more recently, the bottom of the sexual revolution fell out with the hashtag Me Too movement. And you're reading this and you're tracking this and, and you're crying over the abuse you're hearing about of women. But you're rejoicing that finally the sexual revolution has met its end and the playboy philosophy that women are objects and you just use them if you're a man in the way that you want because you're in a position of power. And if they want to get here, if they want to make money, if they want to be a star, if they want this job, you got to come through my sexual desires first. And at bottom fell out and you're thinking, yes. People, finally, women are getting courage up. They're coming out of the woodworks and they're showing us how terrible it had been. And it was the normal. It was the normal of how the industry worked. And how our society worked. And then all of a sudden, it, it takes this little shift. I don't know if you're aware of it, but it took a little shift. Because... People jumping on board with that began to question all kinds of male-female relationships. And then assumptions started to be made. Say, wait a minute, men are abusive to women. And then they start looking for situations that could put women in vulnerable positions to be abused by men. And one of those positions, of course, is the scriptural teaching that the wife is to submit to the husband and the scriptural teaching of male headship. You, that's an example of putting a woman into a vulnerable position. A man should never be a head over a woman. That's what got us in this place to begin with. Men are abusive. 
They should never have to submit. They should never have to do these kind of things. And so all of a sudden, it took this little, the momentum took this little turn and it's, it's creeping its way in the church. And so now people are beginning to scratch their heads and wonder, wait a minute. What do I do with that? I do see a lot of women abused. I do even see what's supposed to be Christian marriage, marriage abused in the church. And women are demeaned in the church and women are looked at as inferior to men in the church. You begin to question, well, what do we do with all this? This little turn that's crept in to our turf and our territory. Well, I think the good thing about all of this is that it's very well needed. Obviously, our culture needed to be have their eyes open to the abuse that had just become normal. Isn't it so sad that it's just normal for a woman to think, well, I just have to do this dirty deed in order to get where I need to go in life. And that's normal. And that it's criminal. Any kind of abuse is criminal. The Bible, again, it's it's wrong application. If, if anything, it's wrong understanding or application. It's not that the word of God is wrong. If anything lifts up the the value of a human being, male and female, it is Holy Scripture. What other basis do you have to make that argument? Where's your authority coming from? It comes from Holy Scripture, not cultural pressure or man's opinions. So it's good, I think, that movement's been good, and it's good to, for the church to be challenged. It's good for the church to be challenged. Wait a minute, did we drink some of the culture's poison? Do we have abuse, criminal abuse in our relationships between men and women? If we do, they need to get out of here. And do we have criminal ideas or unbiblical and immoral ideas about inferiority with women? If we do, they got to get out of here because that's not what the Bible teaches. It does teach different design, different roles. We're created differently to serve him in different ways, just like there's different gifts and talents, talents and so forth. But does it in any way teach inequality? No. So these things need to be purged. But what's happening is. People are taking the truths of God and saying, I'm so glad I'm not under that anymore. That teaching is dangerous. That teaching is wrong. People get hurt, not because the Bible's wrong, because of our own sin or our own misunderstanding of it or our own abuse of truths of Scripture. And I would say that the answer to this is to not back down from scriptural teachings and shrink back because people blame the teachings of the church. Not to back down, but to crack down. To crack down on, well, what does the scripture really say? And do I really believe it or not? Jesus always points to scripture. You see that in his life. He, does, he, he used it in his own life to combat temptation in the wilderness. Now he's feeding it to John the Baptist to soothe his troubled soul. I am the one, and here's how I know. It's the fulfillment of God's word. It stands forever. You're going to change your opinion. You're going to change your mind. You're going to change your morals. God's word stands forever. So don't back down. Crack down on these things. And here's what I see happening is that our culture is in love with false gods. Our culture is in love with false gods and has the habit of breaking free from the bondage of one only to run into the arms of another. 
and freedom and respect and joy is found in God's word. We, we don't want to break free from one idol only to crawl into the arms of another form of bondage. And that's exactly what will happen if we do not solidify in our minds and clearly understand and proclaim and embrace this timeless Holy Scripture. The gift that God has spoken to us. That's why we build on the rock. And then another way to combat it, and it sounds like the same thing, but you'll see that it's not. Another way to combat doubt is, is to, to not just side with biblical revelation and give revelation the benefit of the doubt instead of saying, oh, the Bible's wrong and I must be right. But also we battle doubt by wholeheartedly trusting in this revelation. Well, what do you mean by that? Look at Jesus's little comment in verse six. Tell John about the miracles and the blind seeing the lepers are cleansed. But then he says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Where did that come from? Well, it actually fits very well into the context. Because the word offended means to be shocked, to fall away, to be angry. Uh, to, to, to feel scandalized because of something said or done. And the blessing comes to those that aren't offended or scandalized or ashamed or embarrassed or angry at Christ and the teachings of Christ. And, you know, many church teachings today are viewed as scandalizing. They're viewed as shameful. And they are very offensive to modern day culture and the direction that it is headed in. Shameful. Offensive. The idea that a woman should voluntarily submit to a man is offensive to some. The idea that the church teaches that marriage should only be, be between one man and woman, it's brutal. Who are you to make those kind of judgments? The idea that you should save yourself or only give yourself sexually to one person when there's so many other pleasures out there, it's suffocating. The idea that divorce is only permitted with few exceptions is just so judgmental. The idea that we should give our lives in order to receive it. And that giving is more blessed than receiving is just absolutely backwards of how the world works. What is wrong with you people? And these teachings, these teachings that we hold to today as New Covenant Fellowship. These teachings are more than ever causing people to stumble. And they're causing Christians to stumble. Because of what we've been confronted with. Today, and they are causing Christians to be ashamed and shocked. That's in the Bible. God said that. The church teaches that. Trust means to joyfully submit to the ways of God. That's where the freedom lies. Look at, not as another point, but just as kind of a conclusion. Look how. Jesus handles this 
great prophet who is doubting. He gives him the word. Revelation points him to that. But look what he says to the people. He defends John. He's the greatest prophet ever. Verse 11, I say, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. How can that be possible? What's so great about John? He didn't he didn't raise a staff and split the water in two. He didn't make the axe head float. What's so great about John? It's because of his privileged position. Because scripture has been saying all along the Messiah is coming. And so the other prophets got to say the Messiah is coming. And then the other prophets even got to prophesy and say, there's going to be a prophet that's going to say not the Messiah is coming, but the Messiah is here. Who is that prophet? John. He alone got that privilege among all other prophets. Prophets, And because he was the one that got to say those words, that's what makes him greater than all the others. He is the prophetic climax for all pre-Christian prophecy. So his place in redemptive history is what makes him so great. Let me read a quote from D.A. Carson regarding that. Because in verse 11, it says the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. Now, how does that work? So often Christians want to establish their greatness with reference to their work, their giving, their intelligence, their preaching, their gifts, their courage, their discernment. But Jesus unhesitatingly affirmed that even the least believer is greater than Moses or John the Baptist simply because of his ability living on this side of the coming of Jesus of Messiah to point him out with greater clarity and understanding than all his forerunners ever could. If we really believe this truth, it will dissipate all cheap vying for position in this world and force us to recognize that our true significance lies simply in our witness to the Lord Jesus the fact that we, what makes us greater? How can Jesus say that? Because we can share the gospel with greater clarity. John wasn't there to see the crucifixion. He wasn't there to see the resurrection. He wasn't there to see the whole church birthed. We know all of this. And we are so privileged to know it. And so privileged to be able to share it. It is that Relationship with redemption that makes greatness. Now, it's not easy. Jesus says persecution will come. The kingdom suffers violence and the violent take it by force. John's in prison. We will face our share of persecution because the world doesn't want to hear it. And lastly, what about this comment about the flute and the dirge? So here's what happens. You share the gospel with great clarity. The world doesn't want to hear it. And even in that day. So the idea is this. John came with discipline and self-control and fasting. And you say, he's too strict. We can't follow him. I don't believe what he says. And then Jesus comes along and he's all about goodness and feeding the hungry and, and, and the poor and healing people of their diseases and giving all these wonderful promises. There's no fasting here. It's all feasting. We can't follow him. He's, he's a drunkard. He eats with sinners. He's too liberal. In other words, it's either too strict 
It's too liberal. It's just another excuse for me not to submit to King Jesus. That's all it is. It doesn't matter what, what we dance, what we offer. It's a hard heart. That has to be broken through. But in the end, wisdom will vindicate itself in the end. So the encouragement is this. To you as saints that live in the same culture that I do, that read the same news lines, hold fast. Let God soothe any doubts that you might have. Hold fast to whatever persecution that you are suffering and take your doubts to special revelation that God has given us that you might be sure. Take your abuses, yes, and the real pain to the the delight of Holy Scripture. The Messiah has come. The Messiah is here. The, the, The curse is being reversed. Jesus will come again. These words are absolutely true. He will fulfill everyone to a T. He will fulfill in our lives exactly what needs to be fulfilled to glorify him. He is overcoming his enemies. Satan has been defeated. This is the world we live in. And this is the place of redemptive history that God has placed us in. Let us live it with passion and surety and form our lives around the word of God and not be ashamed of it and not run from it. May God bless the preaching of his word.